Well, hello, and welcome to another Dishcast. We've been on a roll lately with some pretty amazing guests, and today um, I am incredibly glad that we have Steven Pinker, who's who really doesn't need much explanation. He's a professor of uh, psychology, right? That's the official school you're in at, at Harvard. Probably has the best hair of anyone in the academy, <laughs> rivaled only by Leon Wieseltier, uh, who isn't in the academy. Uh, also an all-round generally good guy. And his latest book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters, is a real... But it's like taking a fun Harvard course, I have to say. I mean, in a way that's incredibly easy to understand in a way, although this is, I must say, I was saying, this man intimidates me. His mind absolutely intimidates me. It's not, it's, I'm not usually intimidated because I'm, I'm blind to my own dumbness a lot of the time. But you can't be when you read his books and when you listen to him. So, Stephen, it's a great honor to have you. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, on. the honor is mine. Th thanks so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I I want to start with the Sand Tribe. You begin with the Sand Tribe. This is because it seems a very basic premise of the book is that rationality obviously comes out of evolution, the evolution of man's brain essentially over the millennia. Is that am I right about that? That that, that rationality emerged really from trying to get things done to survive, to figure out your environment, to plan to do better than other tribes. Is that the, the, the core argument uh, of the premise of the book? Than other tribes, but to outsmart plants and animals that we depend on. And I was, even though I'm a, an advocate of evolutionary psychology and, and believe that we should look at the mismatch between our current environment and the one that shaped human nature, I, I wanted to push back against a kind of pop evolutionary psychology that says, well, of course, we're irrational. What can you expect of a bunch of uh, hunter-gatherers out of t time who just were adapted to avoid becoming lunch for lions on the savanna, and we're just a, a bunch of fallacies and, and biases? And I pushed back by describing the way a, an extant hunter-gatherer tribe lives, the San, formerly the uh, Bushmen, until recently. They were hunter-gatherers, not so much anymore, but it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into life before uh, large cities and literate civilizations. And they're pretty cerebral. They, they engage in persistence hunting, which means uh, basically chasing an animal repeatedly until the animal collapses of heat stroke and, and exhaustion, capitalizes on the fact that we're naked apes, we're not furry, we dump heat so we can run marathons. Other animals are much faster than us, but they don't last long. So if we can just keep figuring out where they are, even after they've darted out of sight, then that gives us the advantage that sooner or later they'll keel over and they can be dispatched by a spear or an arrow or being bashed on the head. But it crucially depends, in the, in the case of the sun, on interpreting where they are, what species they are, what sex, what age from the fragmentary tracks they leave behind. That involves a whole host of what we today call critical thinking. Uh, for example, they don't trust their first impressions. They, if they first guess that it is a uh, kudu or an eland, then they'll stop and think and someone might challenge that hypothesis. A, a young upstart can challenge an elder so they don't fall prey to the argument from authority. They engage in, uh, they, they follow laws of logic. So for example, if there's a uh, honey badger 
that has two toes and a porcupine that has three toes, but sometimes the ground is too soft to have a perfect track. They know that if it's a honey badger, then there'll be two toe prints, but if they're two toe prints, there won't necessarily be a honey badger. It could be a porcupine. So they don't fall for the, the fallacy of affirming the consequent that we learn in logic classes. They engage in Bayesian reasoning. If there's a, a track that's ambiguous between two animals, if it's slightly more characteristic of one species, but another one is more prevalent in the environment, they'll say it's probably the more commonplace one. So just a bunch of examples like that. And the upshot is, if you see irrationality around us now, don't blame the hunter-gatherers. They can be plenty rational. There's got to be an, a, another explanation. No, in fact, I was super impressed by the rationality of the sun. And of course, it, it brought out the reactionary in me. Here you, here you have, obviously, the human brain is not that dissimilar today than it was couple hundred thousand years ago. Am I right about that? Uh, it, 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 the, we would recognize them as human beings, right? I mean, they're not... Uh, oh, unquestionably, yeah. And, and they not only survived, they survived for hundreds of thousands of years. They did not damage their environment. What's fascinating is that they were, you also point out, they were aware that, you know, if you wipe out a certain species and you don't have it for next year, or you don't want to hunt them during a famine or periods in which you might wipe out your ability to sustain yourself, then they didn't. They, they understood time. They planned quite a successful human society. One with, when I compare it to the fishermen on Cape Cod, where we both spend a lot of the time. They fished the whole thing to the, the ground. I mean, until there was no fish left. Uh, they're, they're, no caught, they're no caught in Cape Cod. Right. And yet when we first arrived there, apparently, according to the story, that they were leaping into the air. There were so many of them. So the notion also that, that there has been progress. Uh, again, I want to just, I know this is one of your arguments, but, but it seems to me Weren't the, the San better at being human than we are? They seemed to live normal lives. They had a community, a culture. They didn't destroy their environment. They had a, a sustainable, long-term culture that enabled them to live. Haven't we declined from that? Do we not have huge well, problems now that, that, that came from the extended use of rationality taken to a much greater uh, level? Well, there, there is a strain of thought, a kind of, it is a kind of romantic strain of thought that valorizes hunter-gatherer life. And a number of authors like Jared Diamond and Yuval Noah Harari have suggested, I'm not sure how seriously, that the discovery of agriculture was the biggest mistake that our species ever made, that we are much better off as hunter-gatherers. It's really hard to evaluate that. They certainly didn't live as long. The life expectancy at birth is in the 30s. Certainly their diet was a lot more boring. They knew nothing about the origin of the planet, the nature of life and matter, history. They lived, they had mythology and mythology is fine, but you know, I, I'd kind of rather have the theory of evolution and relativity and Newton and, uh, and the th atomic theory and all, all the rest. Uh, they had uh, religion too. You don't mention it, but did they have a religion? I mean, what was their uh, religious origin, uh, orientation? They, they had they had a bunch of they, they were as most pre-state people were. They they were kind of animistic. They did think there were various spirits and gods in landforms and weather. Uh, they they did have myths and legends. It, it's it, I think it's a hard question to answer. If given the choice, now of course I am a you know, member of the of the um, upper middle class, you know, I've got a fancy schmancy education and a job, so I'm, I know I speak from a privileged position, but I'd, I'd much rather live in, in uh, you know, <laughs> Cape Cod than uh, in the Kalahari Desert. 
Well, uh, I did too, to be honest with you. But I nonetheless, I, I, I think one of the critical biases we have is a bias towards the present in, insofar as we, we find it hard to imagine what it must have been like in other times yes, and, and places. It, no, it is true. And one thing that has to be added is that even though I did begin with a kind of classical picture of egalitarian mobile hunter-gatherer band, which has been taken as representative of the a typical human environment, what our ancestors must have lived in, there, there were in, in, in the midst of something of a, of a shift within anthropological and evolutionary and archaeological thinking that the hunter-gatherer bands that we see today are not a random sample of a um, lifestyle before large civilizations, because we we're, we're finding the peoples who are occupying land that no one else wants, that they haven't been pushed out of, namely deserts and tundras and Arctic regions, land that you can't farm, basically. And probably a, a fuller picture of our ancestors would have included much more complex, stratified, stable societies that just aren't around anymore because big farming civilizations pushed them off the land a long time ago. So there probably was more inequality, there was probably more governance, there was probably more complexity than the uh, extant hunter-gatherers just. When I think about rationality, I wonder whether we restrict it to humans unfairly. I, I think of my dog, for example, that, that will remember that there was a, a potato chip left on a particular point of the beach. <laughs> and one day, the following day, she will inevitably drag, I will have forgotten about this, she will inevitably drag me to that place and get what was left of it or just smell it. That's a kind of reasoning, is it not? I mean, and, and so is rationality something that also extends sort of downwards to other, when I say downwards, I mean outwards to other animals? Yeah. You know, we're smarter, but, you know, they're plenty smart. I mean, they meaning, I mean, it depends on the species, of course. Dogs, of course, have been selected for cooperating with humans and for, you know, depending on the dog, for retrieving or pointing and so on. And other mammals, like, in fact, for that matter, birds, exhibit usually circumscribed kinds of rationality. And what's strange about humans, zoologically speaking, is that our, we can deploy rationality to solve brand new problems. We develop fairly explicit intuitive theories of living things and hidden forces. So uh, it didn't appear out of nothing, but it is the trait that our species has, is, is kind of hypertrophied in our species, as, as seen in our bigger heads. Hence the sapiens, the actual Hence word to describe sapiens, exactly. how we're the smart ones. Does it always, did rationality and reason always emerge out of the need to solve a practical problem? Survival, safety, a shelter, all these things that basic, uh, it, it was there, is there evidence of just abstract thinking, thinking for its own sake in those societies that you speak of? Because you can see how rationality would come out of these needs, but it, it can also surely just take off on its own wings as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it may be, we're kind of speculating here, that in terms of evolutionary selection pressures, it has to be survival, including cooperation with fellow members of our species. But figuring out ways of outsmarting plants and animals to penetrate their defenses, which were established in evolutionary time, where because 
our brains can simulate environments, we can do thought experiments, we can imagine what would happen if I did this, we can pool our discoveries, and so not everyone has to recapitulate someone else's trial and error. We, we can do in real time what the animals can only do in evolutionary time, which is why we're so good at extinguishing other species. I mean, we right. figure out ways of trapping them, of poisoning them, of pursuing them in the case of, of the San. And humans do tend to wipe out species when they move to a new ecosystem because we do in our heads, we penetrate their defenses, we play the evolutionary arms race, which they can only play generation by generation. But once, when, once you have that ability, it's probably true, if you're flexible enough to figure out new ways of figuring out the flora and fauna in the new environment, new ways of extracting poisons and medicines, new ways of devising snares, new ways of uh, tracking them from their footprints, new ways of cooperating with other humans, such as you know, fanning out over a landscape to corner an animal at the edge of a cliff, something that one person couldn't do because the animal will just outflank them, but that a bunch of people coordinating can do. Now, once you have the brain power to do all of that, I suspect that it does open up a whole world that you, like if you have the keys of You're a typewriter. A bit, I'm, I'm not sure whether oh. it's because the, the, the microphone is, something's brushing against it or, or something. Oh, okay. Let me, uh, I think it, I you, you'll find most of them every now and again, I think maybe you move something and it, it just rustles and, and it interrupts. I, the, yes. I, I, I've, uh, I have diagnosed that problem. I've used my rationality <laughs> and I see that my, uh, earphone wire, my mic wire uh, crossed. and uh, That's what it was. You see that? Yeah. Well, there you go. You're just there a you very go. So, you know, I, That didn't help us on the savannah, but once we're smart enough to track the kudu and the eland and the springbok, then we can figure but then out. We get to, but, but then we but get you, to someone like Socrates, right? Then we get to this yeah. sort of, I am just chewing the cud. I'm just throwing questions back and forth. And there's and in that sense, that rationality, that sense of reason, let's not call it rationality, but reason, is not often in the interests of the group, right? It can often, in fact, the whole point of Socrates is that the closer you get to the truth, the more likely you are to be executed. And, and the notion of the real truth, in other words, that there are truths that are useful for the community and truths that can be actually quite dangerous for a community or will pro pro provoke backlash and responses. So there is that tension, is there not, as rationality evolves, that it's, it, it might have evolved in order to make us successful as a social group, but at some point it can also threaten that society. Am I, is that a... Yes. Is that a yeah. Well, in general, adaptations don't necessarily work to the benefit of the group. But as Richard Dawkins argued more than 50 years ago, or almost 50 years ago, to the individual, and in fact, ultimately to the gene. So even no matter how smart we were, it wouldn't necessarily lead the group to cohere and survive if it aided the competition within the group among individuals. But just getting back to your question, because I think it is, it does get to the crux of the issue of when are we or are we not rational. And the, the kind of intelligence that we did evolve to outsmart animals did involve some abstractions, which then can be uh, exaggerated, purified, recombined to open up the universe of thought. For example, in dealing with one another as social beings, we, we don't treat each other as robots or wind-up dolls or you know, meat. We impute minds to other people. We figure out, we, we assume that even though we can't literally get inside their heads, 
we assume that there is something inside their heads. There's something that is like to be them, that they have desires, that they have beliefs. So we have an, a kind of intuitive psychology, and which, by the way, is one of the answers to the question of why people believe uh, so easily in paranormal phenomena like ESP and clairvoyance and ghosts and spirits and reincarnation and karma is uh, a short step from imputing minds to other people to uh, imputing minds that can exist apart from other people. That is, minds that don't have to be tethered to bodies. Now, nowadays, we know that the mind is the product of information processing activity in a brain with its uh, trillion synapses. But before that neurobiological discovery, it's easy to think that somehow mind is this immaterial entity that is temporarily housed in a body. It's a very natural in intuition. Another one is essentialism, the idea that living things have some kind of hidden essence, some kind of stuff inside them that gives them their form and their powers. If you extract it, then you can take advantage of some of the powers of the, the plant or the animal. And again, that's, it's pretty abstract. It's pretty widespread. It's pretty useful in that it motivates people to, to look for medicines and poisons and dyes and other things from plants and animals. But then it can also lead to quack cures like homeopathy. It can lead to the intuition that if health comes from having a pure essence, disease must come from some pollutant or adulterant. And so you get purging and bloodletting and enemas and exorcism as, as medical treatments. And you get intuitive resistance to vaccines, which is, are, is as old as vaccines. and probably comes from the intuition that the last thing you want to do is inject a form of the very little particles that cause a disease into someone's body. Another example of a kind of an intuition that's both sophisticated and lead, can lead to irrationality is the sense of design, that the bodies and artifacts and plans of ourselves are not random. They don't just play themselves out arbitrarily, but there's a kind of goal around which they're organized. We design a tool to accomplish something. We have our plans. Well, again, there it's not that much of a leap to think that the universe unfolds according to a plan, that everything happens for a reason, that there's a divine purpose, that there are no coincidences, and, and so for people to have various teleological and religious and even astrological beliefs. So the cognitive toolkit that did allow our ancestors to be so successful in colonizing the globe without the discipline of modern philosophy and science and um, other bodies of knowledge can spin the, these flights of fancy into uh, paranormal phenomena, quack medical cures, mystical beliefs about purpose and teleology and, and, and so you think and so that for example, that the animus belief or the emergence of religion or the belief in a god is really a kind of projection, the kind of thing that we project onto other people, we then project onto something larger than ourselves is because of things we don't want to Maybe this is a being out there like us, the god as a, for example, that in, in Christian and Jewish thought, god suddenly has a he. There's a pronoun uh, attached <laughs> and, to and it. There's, and then there's only one of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I, I, let's think about something. 
there's something like mathematics, where which you do talk about a little bit, but where you've obviously made the leap out of practical reasoning into more abstract reasoning. And the abstract reasoning has seems to have a structure so that you have this weird thing that mathematicians don't say, I've Found, I've found something new. They sort of suggest they've discovered something that already exists. In other words, they have some kind of model in their head of some abstract vision of mathematics that is independent, really, of themselves. Why is that not projection, too? Yes, and it, it is. I guess the difference is that the we have a lot of reason to believe the, the truths of mathematics, the, the Pythagorean theorem and, and all the rest are, are there in some sense that it's not so easy for us to intuitively grasp, do seem to be external to us. And as you suggest, I think a, a survey showed that most mathematicians are realists or Platonists. That is, they believe that they're not just uh, kind of playing with symbols as a kind of game, but that mathematical truths are out there and they discover them rather than inventing them. It's something that I learned from my, uh, my other half, Rebecca Goldstein, who's a philosopher of science and mathematics, and she's uh, looked into the beliefs of mathematicians and written about them. And they, not all, because they're, as in soft sciences, mathematicians argue with each other and they're different schools of thought. They're, they're Platonists and they're formalists. And, but I think a majority of them are, as you say, realists in the sense that they think that mathematics is a reality outside them. And that's an attitude that I kind of adopt myself in rationality when it comes to what rationality is. Namely, as a psychologist, I'm interested in all of the, the quirks and foibles of human nature. But I also believe that there are what I call, I didn't invent the term, normative models. That is, models of how we ought to reason if we wanted to be rational, of what rationality actually consists of, against which we can compare the performance of a, a typical human being. So for example, logic, I don't think logic is a um, just you know any old game like you know Monopoly or, or Scrabble. It, it really is true in some abstract sense or probability, game theory. These are kind of truths that any rational species you know, could discover if they were curious enough. And then they set the benchmarks against which we can compare the way humans naturally reason. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the, the Platonist sort of concept of the, word, of the world in that sense, that there is, a rea there is some reality out there <laughs> that, that we, by virtue of our blindness, our, our flaws, our failures can't quite see, and we're probably never going to get it quite right. And we're constantly discovering it, but it's there. And just that assertion that it's there orients us in a certain way to discovering it, to having certain rules for discovering it. Whereas the alternative well, would be there's nothing at all. We just make everything up, will to power, you name it, all of those subjective experiences, which are just as human in so many ways as our, our reason, right? Yeah, I think you put your your finger on it, on, on and it is... A little bit mind-bending to, to try to, and, and I don't think we are equipped with the intuitions to fully grasp the idea that you know a number or a theorem is you know kind of out there, and we're, we're apt to think, well, where <laughs> does someone write it down? What does it look like? If you found it, it's these are misapplying human intuitions to realms that we did not evolve to to grasp intuitively. We can argue for them. We can sense that they are real even though they defy our powers of visualization or intuition. But, you know, we are, the, the brain is involved. There you go. You, 
you've got a little bit of Christianity in there. You've got a little bit of religion in there. We cannot understand these things, but they do exist. I mean, one of the, just one of the things I want, because I'm fascinated with this conversation, I would put it, between religion and science, so which I think probably has, I think has more uh, to it than you, you probably do. But I, when reading your book, I kept coming back to the, the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was Logos. The Word. In that, the Word. Uh, logos, but also word meaning reason, thought, that there is something rational about godness, as it were, that there is something out there that is not crazy. It's not a, it's not a Greek version of various gods throwing down thunderbolts and pursuing their own desires. There is something eternal out there that is reasonable, that the Christianity, in a way, in that first sentence of the, of the Gospel of John, is saying, if God exists, then God is compatible, has to be compatible with reason. Right. Well, we apply our best reason to try to you know, derive a, a defensible interpretation out of that you know, somewhat poetic and you know, be quite beautiful and somewhat enigmatic pronouncement. So the word isn't the word in the sense of, for example, it's got a pronunciation, you know, what linguists would call a you know, phonological representation. It's, we're using word there as a kind of metonymy for some you know, idea or abstract Rationality. reality to yeah, to, maybe to rationality, indeed. And you know, they, there is, you know, I think that one can acknowledge what some sophisticated theological beliefs are getting at, and analyze them and, and select which aspects are, are onto something and which ones are superfluous. So, for example, so it doesn't you... follow. It doesn't follow from from the existence of abstract truths independent of human minds that those abstract truths include the particular stories in scriptures or, or divine retribution or design in the physical unfolding of the universe. Uh, you have to be a, I know you can't be a cafeteria Catholic, but you've got to be, you got to kind of be a cafeteria Catholic or a cafeteria Jew to kind of extract, to pick and choose the, the items that we really can defend. Because obviously, as, as you know, you know, Millennia of very thoughtful, smart people have pondered some of these mysteries of knowledge and truth. Chances are not everything that they say was out to lunch, but they probably got some of the details wrong too. Do you admire, for example, the work of a man like Aquinas, who is obviously grappling with the minutiae of Aristotelian understanding of nature? I mean, there, there may not be, it may be pre-scientific. It's a teleological Abstract, but there's definitely reasoning within it. It, it. We can't. If we have a bunch of beliefs, they can't be contradictory. They can't have the, even within religious structures. There's a sense of we need to be consistent. We can't have exceptions that violate the rule. And so there's. You can see reason if, if it's not if it's not enlightenment reason, but it's reasoning is already at work in some of these religious explorations of the the Middle Ages and 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 before. Yes, religious traditions had not exactly a monopoly, but certainly a dominant market share when it came to attracting smart minds interested in abstract questions for millennia. And you know, I have to admire the, the best minds in the history of our civilization grappling with these eternal dilemmas. Well, at the same time, I do believe there's intellectual progress, that ideas informed by certain scientific epiphanies have got to be better in the sense of more closely aligned with the truth, uh, according to our best efforts. So there really is a, a very different view of the universe and of truth and of knowledge and of destiny and so on. When you have Newton's laws of a, a mindless, 
feed-forward universe without any teleology and fundamental physical laws. When you have the theory of evolution, that uh, as opposed to the argument from design of explanation of biological complexity in terms of the anticipatory designs of a creator. When you have neuroscience, and so you see human thought and perception uh, as processes that could be carried out by complex physical matter. Uh, when you have evolution applied to psychology, so our, our moral sense, our motives, our thought patterns for better or worse are shaped by the, the demands for survival and reproduction. All of these are, are real revolutionary ideas that pertain to some of these deep issues that theologians grappled with and have got to change the answer. So we don't have to accept their particular conclusions while indeed showing respect for their, their wrestling with these profound issues. Absolutely. And that brings us really to the real paradox of your book and why you're writing it now, is that we have achieved an extraordinary amount of intellectual progress. We know things now that we didn't know even five, ten years ago. The rate of human knowledge is, and yet it feels that we live in this culture which is writhing with irrationality and <laughs> incapable of even grappling with these things. And, and part of that's true and part of it isn't. Obviously, uh, you know, when we design our aircraft and when we do all these things with reason and with science and when we develop a new vaccine, we're using these things. And yet, humans seem to rebel against this or think they're being reasonable when in fact they're falling into, I mean, no one wants to be irrational, right? I mean, no one right. thinks they're being irrational when they are being rational, but they are <laughs> violating certain laws, certain rules of logic that they haven't quite figured out yet, right? So, and the book is a really fun account of these different mistakes that we make, these delusions, really, rather than as well as mistakes, because we think we're right, even though we're not. And we all think we're reasonable, even when we're not, right? So tell me what you think of the, the, the primary right now delusions, flaws in reason and rationality that our culture is particularly prone to, that we need to think about some more and, and check ourselves in the way we are thinking. What are the things that are currently the most problematic of these flaws? Probably the my side bias. This is There's a recent very good, excellent book about it by Keith Stanovich, one of the world's experts on rationality, where he goes over the literature on the, the literally hundreds of biases and fallacies that have been documented. There's a Wikipedia page in alphabetical order that lists 200 uh, biases and fallacies. He suggests that probably the my side is the most pervasive in the sense that it's independent of intelligence. That is, whereas for a lot of cognitive fallacies like the gambler's fallacy and the sunk cost fallacy, smarter people are on average less susceptible to them. But that's not true of the my side bias. The my side bias, sorry, I should say what it is, which is you ratify the sacred beliefs of your own coalition, your, your tribe, your sect, your political party and you block yourself off or dismiss those of what you perceive to be a rival coalition. You try to show how noble and wise your side is and how foolish and evil the other side is. I, I hardly need to mention examples, especially uh, to you, because you're at the, 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 the forefront of this battle of trying to analyze issues <clears throat> on their merits instead of just falling <clears throat> back onto a political tribe. But that is a big one, and, and it can easily be demonstrated in the lab. The two simple families of 
demonstrations are. You take a political position, say a position on taxation or income or crime, you attribute it to someone on the left, and people on the left say it's a great idea, people on the right say it'll never work. You attribute the very same position to someone on the right, and then the positions flip. So that's one way of showing the my side bias when, in the political arena. The other well, way if you, is... If you described, just another example, you described the Affordable Care Act and said it was supported by Donald Trump, everyone, the, the, they would love it. Uh, in fact, when you isolate out the different parts of it, everyone's massively in favor of it. But once the word Obama is attached to it, suddenly it becomes the greatest threat to human liberty since, I don't know, since whenever. Right. Right? I mean, that's it, what we, happened. We should, have, we should have stuck to Romney care when it was uh, we should proposed have. That's by, what it was. by Mitt Romney. Romney when he was the governor of Massachusetts. Stuart Butler uh, at the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation created Obamacare. Oh, right. Uh, well, no, that, I mean, that, that is a, a perfect example. The other way to demonstrate it is you give people some, say, results of a hypothetical study on gun control, and you, the, the numbers are fake, but they're designed to mislead so that they might say that gun control is effective, whereas if you really scrutinize the numbers, they're not, or vice versa. And even highly numerate, highly intelligent people on the left will fall for a misleading pattern in the numbers if it ends up supporting the position they began and they held in the first place, say for gun control, and vice versa on the right. So people will commit both logical and statistical fallacies in pursuit of a position that their politics say ought to be true. So that's the bias. It's not the only one, but it's it's way up there. The other one is, and this is one I know that you've, I believe you, you may have spoken to Jonathan Rausch, or you obviously you know, know yes, him quite been, well. Yes, he's been on, he's been on this dishcast, and he's a very old and good friend of mine. His book is Constitutional Knowledge. I think he probably I mean, thought it was terrific as I did. I mean, it's I clarity, it's at least, yes. But go on, clarity. And he makes a point that Stanovich also makes, which is that, and, and it speaks to the the deep paradox that was one of the motivations for my writing rationality, namely, how does a species both show such feats of rationality, but such uh, florid displays of uh, craziness at this, the same species? And part of the answer is, both Stanovich and Rausch make the argument in different ways, is that to the extent that we've accomplished really impressive things, as a species, it isn't because there's like one genius who's figured it all out, because even geniuses come up with cockamamie ideas. And there's a long list of Nobel Prize winners in science who've embraced all kinds of nutball theories outside their domain of expertise. So it's never the rationality of you know one guy or one woman. It's that we join in communities of open debate, of fact-checking, validation, of peer review, of open criticism, taking advantage of the fact that we, even though each one of us is, as you noted before, biased when it comes to our own ideas, we're much better at po poking holes in someone else's ideas. So you can capitalize on, on that. If you have a community of people kind of winnowing out the vast majority of falsehoods and picking out the few pearls of you know, good ideas, which you have to do as a community of review and fact-checking and editing, then we have the hope to kind of wend our way toward truer beliefs. When those institutions are disabled, then uh, is when you get these explosions of irrationality as we fall back on our various primitive intuitions and conspiracy theories and so on. So it's institutions that solve the problem 
that it's, it's kind of a game theoretic problem, and I have a chapter in the book on game theory, that what can be rational for every individual can be irrational for the society as a whole. In particular, if each individual pursues solidarity, fame, admiration from their peer group or clique, being the most fearless warrior for the cause, that can be smart for everyone in pursuit of status and, and recognition and respect, but it can be deadly for the society as a whole because it doesn't guarantee that we'll end up with the, the beliefs that are true and conducive to human well-being. And it's the institutions that change the alignment so that what's good for everyone is what works well for each individual. What, what that is, in some ways, is marshalling irrationality for the purpose of rationality, right? Because it's on my side, bias makes you want to point out the flaws and mistakes and errors of the other side, right? So as long as both sides are doing that to each other, it's a very, not a particularly elevated discussion because it's entirely negative, but the outcome is generally positive. And so you're kind of harnessing the worst parts of human nature to elevate the better parts of of human nature. I mean, that's one of the one of the great breakthroughs of the Enlightenment, or even the Reformation, in some ways, in which you can say we accept that humans are absolutely shitty and hate each other. So let's not pretend otherwise. <laughs> let's construct a system devised upon our acceptance that we are a horrible species and that we will attack each other, hate each other, and fight each other. And, be, and then that irrationality is the basis for a rational system that can counteract it. And that's sort of, in my understanding, what liberalism is. It is a structure to flush out error, harnessing those human instincts that are actually not terribly rational to advance reason. I couldn't agree more. And, and it was all pretty explicit in the uh, debates among the American founders and, and framers, uh, I think Madison had the wonderful phrase, ambition must be made to counter ambition. That is, yeah, you're going to have people who want to be autocrats, but then as long as they have other people who you know, squash them down, then, then, then the system as a whole can kind of muddle through. But I think, yeah, I think what you, what you just portrayed is kind of the human predicament. That is, we are we're not angels, we're not infallible, we're not omniscient, but we do have some tools. They're partly rational, partly irrational. That is the desire to be right, the desire to prove other people wrong. That can be very dangerous if you're the only guy who gets to, to exercise it. But if you have a community where the desire to be, everyone wants to be right, but not everyone can be right. And not people who don't have a dog in a particular fight can observe the fight and you know, vote for which side is more persuasive. This is hard, though, isn't it? It's a hard thing for humans to do, to argue against what they sometimes perceive as their own interests, in a way. I'm thinking, for example, you could be a member of minority, and that minority may have had a history of terrible oppression or hostility or violence. I'm thinking now about being a gay person, for example, which I'll use a personal one. And you come across this ancient canard that your mommy made you gay. She was too close, your dad was too distant. This is an extraordinarily common belief in the 20th century, essentially, and Freud helped bring that about. Now, it could be true, right? It, there could be some element of truth in it. It's a very hard thing to do a control group and understand that, but it could be true. It could also be simply correlation that you a, a gay kid shows up and mom instinctively wants to protect the kid and dad is instinctively a little leery of the kid and so it could be cause rather than effect 
But here's the question. I, I, I read them, all these reparative therapists like 20 years ago because I wanted to understand the best argument against myself. And I found parts of it intuitively persuasive. But how do I say that to a world that wants to dismiss gay people, that wants to discriminate against people, that would hurt in some ways many of my fellow homosexuals if they thought that could be the case? It would wound their self-esteem. It could make them feel you know, described in ways that bigots have always described them. But I wrote an essay that sort of went through the arguments that they went through and actually came to the conclusion that we don't, we can't tell exactly, but, and there may be something to this, but essentially because of the correlation causation problem, we can't really resolve it. But I'm committing harm in a way to my fellow homosexuals by airing these difficult subjects. And I do that because I'm just slightly freakish. I'm, I've always been a little individual. I've always been questioning about doctrines and orthodoxies. I've wanted to penetrate them. How do you how do we overcome that sense to confront truth, even when it may harm us, even when it will wound our, our self-esteem, our psyches, our souls? I mean, this is where so much of the younger generation's dislike or dis disdain for liberalism comes from. It's that how can you be so cruel? Because the truth can be cruel, can it not? Yes. And, it's, you know, and I have grappled with similar tensions, probably not as agonizing as yours, but just asking questions, for example, what, what makes Jews different from you know, other ethnic groups? What accounts for their relative success in so many societies? Most, the, the, the official doctrine, most Jewish thinkers is, well, we're the people of the book and we have the law and morality and so on. And, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. But there may also be something to the fact that, that uh, Jews are an entrepreneurial people, a middleman minority. This is an argument that Thomas Sowell has made in looking at common patterns between other middlemen minorities, such as the, the Lebanese, the overseas Chinese, the often Caribbeans in American cities that are entrepreneurial. There's a whole complex of traits that go together with middleman minorities, those involved in retail and money lending. And that's, you know, that can feed into certain stereotypes that have been unquestionably harmful. And I think there, there, there may be two answers, and perhaps it's a sign of my own confusion that I, I can't come down on side of one or the other. One of them is that the truth can set you, the, the truth will set you free. That, you know, even ugly truths are we're better to be in touch with reality than to fight against reality and that we should we ought to separate our factual understanding of the world from our moral commitments as uh, james flynn the discoverer of the eponymous flynn effect rising iq scores once put it the, the truth can't be racist and if you're not a racist you shouldn't be afraid of, of any facts because it's a commitment to treat people with fairness and, and respect so that's one mindset. There's another one, maybe it's compatible, which is that we should take, and this is going to be the subject of my next book, actually, that we, one of the things I'm interested in as a psychologist is the way so many of our social relationships are, are not blurted out explicitly, but are carried out with innuendo and euphemism and politeness and civility and polite fictions and benevolent hypocrisy, things that you just don't say, even though you might know, you don't kind of put them out there. Uh, and you know, I don't have to give examples. We all have, have them by the dozens. Human social relationships thrive because we don't say everything in so many words. There's some things that we just agree to think but not to say. Are there 
is there such a thing as tact when it comes to science and social science and intellectual life where there are certain truths that we just decide to kind of downvote? We don't proclaim the opposite. We don't say things that are false, but some things that we just say, let's not go there. Let's not talk about them too explicitly. Maybe a little bit of artful euphemism. Maybe we'd be better off. Now that runs contrary to some of the spirit of science and open debate and philosophy, which is, you know, go where the ideas take you, wherever that may be. But sometimes I wonder whether a bit of tact, civility, benevolent hypocrisy has a place in intellectual life. Well, this is, you know, this is, has always had a place in intellectual life. I mean, especially in pre-liberal eras where writers, you want to go to read Leo Strauss's Persecution of the Art of Writing, in which writers are, are saying things, but in code in some ways, or, or they are in euphemism, or in ways that you'd have to be really smart to figure out how it went. This guy doesn't really mean that, does he? He must mean this. I mean, I'm thinking about, for example, the belief of philosophers for a very long time, there was no God. Well, they weren't going to say that, but you can read Spinoza and make draw your own conclusions, right? So yeah, I think tact is, is, is true. However, when others make very broad statements that inequality is caused by this thing alone, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of trapped, aren't you? Because you want to say, well, I don't think that because this other thing is out there that kind of complicates things. And if you don't say that, then the other argument kind of wins by default and you end up doing dumb things. So I, I agree with you. It's more tact than anything else, I think. And that's yeah, why we're I mean, more able to tolerate sort of a, a, a politically incorrect position about a minority by someone who isn't already in that minority. In other words, we give that person more leeway than we would someone from outside. But that's not rational, right? No, well, the thing is, it, it could be if it is a kind of a meta decision that reflects back on certain rational practices and says, well, it may be rational to carve out a domain in which we don't apply the following tools of rationality in service of some superordinate goal like you know like like harmony like civility and of course that itself can be rational and right at the beginning of the book i define rationality as the use of knowledge to pursue a goal and the goal <clears throat> we have different goals sometimes they are intention we may, may not we can't pursue them all at once there may be some cases in which a public objective understanding uh, that's one goal some degree of harmony and nonviolence and coexistence might be another goal. And we might, kind of rising above both of those goals, say, which one do we want to prioritize? And can we tolerate a bit of genteel hypocrisy, ignorance here in service of another goal there? But just to get back to whether it's always, you know, it, it's there's no simple answers to when we should indulge in this genteel hypocrisy. Because getting back to the issue of the, the position of gay people in society, I remember my PhD advisor, Roger Brown, the great social psychologist, who was actually, he denied that he was gay. He said, I'm a homosexual. He said, to be gay, you have to be born after uh, World War II. I was born in 1928. There were no gay people in my generation. I'm a homosexual. He said that late in life. And it was a, for him, it was a, you know, a bombshell, a revelation. And for those of us who, you know, who worked with him and, and loved him, there was this funny consciousness where no one would actually say that he was gay. Everyone knew it. He was a bachelor. You know, these were the days of, it's not exactly the closet because everyone knew it, but it was just not 
said, not acknowledged. He would not show up with his partner. But I think it was probably uh, it was an agonizing existence for him. And I think, uh, you, I mean, you, you could tell me, but I, I think that it's better now that it is out in the open, that, you know, if someone's gay, they say they're gay. And I mean, that's a much, much better world, it would seem to me. It so is a much better area. world. But there's a dis the one distinction I make in that is that's because of the choice of individuals to tell other people rather than people pointing out, well, you are gay, factually. <laughs> so that's, you know, in other words, coming in and outing someone, which is yeah. true, right? You could out someone as something that is true. They are a homosexual. Larry Craig almost certainly is a homosexual. But do we want to be tactless in using that, especially? And, and do we want to humiliate someone who well, at that point in time has constructed a certain kind of life? There are certain ethical, I think, quandaries there that you want to take into account? Unquestionably. I mean, another example from a different domain is, you know, I'm a you know, thoroughgoing atheist. I don't believe that there is an afterlife. But if the, the woman who, uh, who we hired to clean our house underwent a you know, terrible tragedy, her sister was killed in a car crash, her sister's grandchildren, and she said, my only consolation is that we'll all be reunited in heaven. Now, I am not going to say, oh, well, actually, of course you're not. not. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, there's just, there's just, you know, no way in the world because I'm, you know, I'm a human being and I have compassion. And that itself is a goal that is distinct from the goal of spreading what I consider to be true beliefs as far and wide as possible. And it, it, it's not a compromise of rationality because rationality is in service of a goal. Rationality can always reflect back on applications of itself. It can be recursive in the sense of it can take itself as input and examine when, when it should be applied and when there can be specific carve-outs. And that itself can be a rational kind of super decision or meta decision. But don't you get into the danger then of saying everything humans do is rational? In as much as there could be a meta-rationality for irrationality, that 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 you could get into a, you see what you see the point I, I'm making. Oh yeah, no, there, uh, absolutely, because there is that danger, and and this applies to the kind of classical notion of rational man, Homo economicus, that if you're willing to invent the motives after the fact, after you see what someone does, then you know circularly you could say that everything is rational. Oh, they're just right. in pursuit of you know. Why do they leave their umbrella at home in the rainstorm? Well, you know, maybe they don't mind being wet. So it was rational to leave it at home. I mean, I think there is there are ways out of that circle, such as you could ask the person, you know, did you want something and did you get it? Or did the person slap themselves on the forehead and say, what was I thinking? How could I be such an idiot? You know, that, that's a way of getting out of the circle where we say about ourselves, oh my God, I can't believe I was so irrational. You know, yeah, we have lapses. A, there's also a tendency to... To, in this particular culture right now, to actually, I'm, I'm thinking about something you just said, which is say that intent is, doesn't matter, that what matters is impact, which, which really does take rationality, it seems to me, out of the question, because it assumes that the person can't, uh, oh, how would you respond to that? Because that is now, it's seeping into the social sciences, it's seeping into our politics, that something is I am a racist, not because I think one group of human beings are inferior to another, but because simply I live in a capitalist society that is allegedly constructing a, a, a racial superstructure of oppression, and I'm not resisting it enough. Therefore, I am a racist, even though I may not intend to be, even though it's not in my mind or my heart. That's what I am. Is that yeah, rational? 
you know, I, I don't think so, but, uh, but you can see where it comes from. I mean, it's the notion, kind of the legal equivalent is strict liability where intent doesn't matter. So, you know, if you buy a, uh, you know, quart of milk and it's, you know, it's curdled when you buy it and you bring it back to the store and the store owner says, well, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't know it was curdled. I thought it was good milk when I sold it to you. You know, he still owes you another bottle of milk. And, and right. that's an area of the law where intent doesn't. And, you know, I think we do, it is always tempting if you're the victim to have a, a notion of strict liability because then the person from whom you're seeking compensation can't get off the hook. It can lead to a, I think, a, a, a badly designed system as a whole because it doesn't align incentives. And ultimately, we, we want our moral and legal regimes to incentivize people to do good things. And that's why we zero in on intentions. If something was truly an unpreventable accident, then uh, punishing them is not going to reduce that kind of misfortune in the future. It's just causing unnecessary suffering. That's why we don't punish children. That's why we don't punish animals, because we have our ethical and moral standards as a kind of incentive structure. But because another... we can never, we can never be sure of incentives, they're always, you know, ultimately, uh, never sure of intentions, I mean, they ultimately are, you know, ultimately private. There is a temptation if you're the prosecutor, if you're the, the victim, to throw intention out, as uh, I think it's captured by a line from The Godfather, the, the novel, I don't think it made it into the, the movie, accidents don't happen to someone who takes accidents as a personal insult. And I think it, it, shortly in the same, this is from Vito Corleone, and he said, if, if some terrible misfortune strikes, my son gets struck by a bolt of lightning, I will hold the people in this room responsible. <laughs> now, in one sense, that's completely irrational. You know, on the other hand, if your enemies are trying to cover their tracks, then that uh, that mindset of strict liability can be a, a strategic weapon. And I think that's often happening. If you're trying to demonize people, attack them, pull them down, then it's very convenient to throw intention out the window. It's ultimately not a, a sustainable system. Yeah, it's about punishment. It's about punishment, <laughs> exactly. It's about, raw, it's about raw aggression, yeah. Yes, which is... Uh... Let me, another fallacy that seems to be very common and very human is the impact of video. You know, you see five incidents, let's say, of horrifying police abuse. And we've all seen this. And this has happened because cops wear cameras or that people have cameras and they capture a particularly horrible, like the Floyd murder. But from that, we can get a general impression that this is a huge problem everywhere, that our emotions are triggered in such a way is that we mass it, or well, same with a terror incident, you know, where the one thing happens and suddenly everyone's scared to get on a plane. Or School shootings are another example, rampage exactly. shootings. Yeah. And I don't know why, I can't, I've never, I just, I always ask, well, what's the data? Because that's what I've been trained, basically, by college and grad school and as a journalist to ask myself, is this, representative? Is it not representative? But the power of imagery, the power of videos, the power of social media to implant and create patterns in people's minds that, for example, white supremacy is everywhere or that white supremacy doesn't exist at all and repeated in social media endlessly. So it's imprinted on your mind to give a false impression. Uh, and I was thinking there were two issues that I, I kind of I, I agree with you on. One is nuclear power and the second is, is police shootings which is in full context that the situation is nowhere near as bad as people think it is. In other words, 
my, we're in a global crisis of climate change. It's, I have no question that's happening. It seems to be quite obvious by all the evidence. We also have, and I can imagine a historian of the future looking back and saying, mankind was suffering from carbon infestation and rising seas and, and rising temperatures. But luckily, in the mid-20th century, they discovered a, an energy source that did not contribute any carbon or any particular amount of carbon. And they decided as a species to ignore it. In fact, they actually started shutting down these plants as the crisis intensified. How do we counter that? Yeah, well, indeed, these are all examples of what Amos Tursky and Daniel Kahneman called the availability bias, namely that we base our assessment of risk and danger and probability on available examples from memory. So we use our, our brain search engine as a way of doing probability, which is, you know, needless to say, not what probability actually is. It's number of occurrences divided by number of opportunities. And it can be very different from viral videos or unforgettable accidents like, like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima, which if you actually count up the number of dead bodies are nowhere near the number that are killed by coal, both from mining accidents and from particulate matter in, in, in the air that cause respiratory diseases and all the, the fossil fuels. And for that matter, you know, solar and wind inevitably involve accidents in construction and you know, workers falling off roofs and, and, and so on. And indeed, it is a major distorter of a lot of our policies that they're driven by unforgettable accidents, viral videos, horrific images, that the kids are, are trained in active shooter drills, whereas they're much more in, in jeopardy when their parents drive them to school that same morning. And the costs of overreacting to these unforgettable images is often not factor, factored in. You know, in the case of the, in some of these events, like the, the Floyd shooting, there's another kind of rationality that is involved, though, which I think supersedes the actual risk, which, by the way, this is one of the cases where surveys have shown that the, the left is out to lunch in terms of the actual familiarity with the data and the, the right is closer to the truth. Often it's the right that's accused of being scientifically illiterate, which is often true, but this is a case in which it's, it's kind of flipped. In the case of the Floyd killing, it's like there is a phenomenon that I call a conspicuous outrage. And it was first identified by Thomas Schelling back in 1960. That is that sometimes there is a visible and flagrant assault on a member of one's group that not only do you know about, but you know that everyone else knows that everyone else knows that everyone else knows about. It's public. And it's perceived as an intolerable affront. And it can be a motive toward collective action that somehow the moment never arrives without that catalyst. And there are numerous cases in history when there's been one of these catalytic conspicuous outrages. The Tunisian a uh, fruit peddler who set himself on fire triggered the Arab Spring. 9-11, which led to the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Pearl Harbor, the explosion of the Maine, the burning of the Reichstag. And this mix of events kind of shows that reacting to them is not always innocuous. It can lead to disasters as well as overdue action. And it's something that we, I think has to be approached very carefully because it is a mobilizing event. It's a crisis that you don't let go to waste, as the cliche has it. But of course, it can lead to intemperate actions that are later regretted, as in the case of the reactions to 9-11. Well, that's in my case, 
by far the biggest act of irrationality that I ever engaged in is in the aftermath of that horrible event. I, I, I think my brain just got scrambled by trauma and anger and rage and horror. And I wanted to do something good in commens commensurate to what I thought had been the evil. And then throughout so much else of my rationality in the pursuit of that goal. And then also my sadism came in and it was a really well, sobering experience that, that you can think you're incredibly reasonable and rational. And yet it's, it, your brain has been hijacked in ways that you don't even fully comprehend by emotion, by, by feeling, by passion. I think the fact that I was an immigrant here made it all the more personal for me that these people had come to this place, which was for me, this new and wonderful world where these kind of things did not happen. They happened. How dare these people do that? I mean, all sorts of righteous anger, right? Yes. Uh, and actually, what's remarkable is that you have just given such a full accounting of your own self-reflection, something that is, you know, I don't have to tell you, is pretty rare in the realm of well, of everything, but including political punditry, but rare enough among academics as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, we should all be as principled and courageous, as unflinching as you have been in that well, instance. Well, you're, you're too kind. How do you cope? And I will wind this up. How do you cope? The fact that you have, it seems to me that all your books, and I've read plenty of them, actually, really are driven by reason. And you, and yet, You've also been targeted because some of your conclusions are not completely simpatico with where the left now is. How bad is it? And how, I mean, how, first of all, how do you deal with that? How do you keep your reason in check? You don't get, you don't feel like you're in a corner and you got to fight back and throw whatever weapon you want against these people. And yet you also want to continue doing what you do. Is there a trick? Is there, a, is there something that we could yeah. all learn from your what seems to me to be extraordinary composure in the middle of all this? Well, I try to, you know, and it is, you know, as you could imagine, and as you know personally, it is a source of you know, anxiety and pain and, and anguish. I do try to reflect on it, on uh, how best to, to deal with it. You know, on the one hand, I have to step outside myself and think, okay, you know, as, as, as they, they, they say, they quote the Godfather again, this is the business that, that we've chosen. I have to expect to be criticized and, and attacked because, you know, I believe that's the way that we collectively approach the truth. It's painful when it happens to you, but but I got to be prepared for it. That's that that's the bargain that I signed. So I have to what? keep that net awareness, however painful it, it is. I also keep strategically know that just you know, lashing out can feel good in the moment, but do more harm in the long run. That to be to kind of you know, counter 10, stifle certain emotions, be aware of the Streisand effect that sometimes subjecting something too publicly can draw attention to something that you wish people would forget, as in uh, Barbara Streisand's notorious attempt to keep have a legal injunction to keep photographers away from her Malibu home, which led the, the press to descend on it and take, you know, <laughs> take pictures to see what the fuss was all about. Uh, I try to manage my own emotions day to day by uh, balancing between the unpleasantness of, say, reading a negative review and the realization that the only way to grow, to align yourself more with reality is to read, read criticisms as well as praise. And I, I try to 
sort of observe myself as an emotional being and figure out how to manage it. So I won't, you know, I won't read a negative review before going to bed where I'll just be stewing over my reply all night. I, you know, I might read it on a plane where I'm already kind of uncomfortable and not having a great time and how much worse can it get? So I, I process the information while minimizing the damage that it does to my emotional well-being. And I also put things in perspective that, you know, I, I'm extraordinarily privileged for being a tenured professor. I mean, that is a, a unique perk in the entire world. And I just don't let myself feel too sorry for myself knowing that my employment is pretty secure. Other people don't have that privilege. And indeed, when I was the subject of a, a rather silly petition last summer involving the Linguistic Society of America, you know, I had to remind myself, you know, it's no, really ultimately no skin off my nose, but the, the problem is that it sends a signal to people who don't have that kind of institutional protection, to the freelance journalists, to the grad students, to the postdocs, to the, the contract instructors. It's, it's a message of intimidation to them that if they question any orthodoxy, their careers could be over. So it helps kind of steer my concern. It's, you know, that's the case where it's really not about me. It's about the, the whole landscape. Yeah, I feel entirely the same. I do not feel in any way persecuted given the fact that I'm able to continue doing what I do and actually be rewarded more. But I'm also aware that I'm among very few who could do that. And and I'm concerned about the younger generations who are trying to think for themselves and being told, don't think for yourself. These are the signals you need to send and you'll do fine. I just like that, that chilling email at Yale, Yale Law School, like to this guy who sent out this jokey invitation to a, a I don't know if you saw this case. Just, yes, there's just okay. it, was sort of, it was sort of, um, well, you know, this might affect your future career if you don't apologize for this. Nice career uh, you got. Nice career you got there. Something happened to it. Yeah, that that stuff is happening, and in a university, which is truly depressing from my point of view. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for being here with us and for talking at such length about such difficult things. And I, you know. Uh, as you know, we differ about some things. Uh, and I, I didn't want to get into them today. Um, life after death, the mystery of the universe, <laughs> things that we cannot know. <laughs> My, minor been, stuff like that. Just small, trivial stuff that I thought was probably we should probably stick to rationality as opposed to the irrational. But one on day another, we should sit down and talk about the irrational. Have, have yes. me back on another dishcast. I will. Lovely to see you. You seem to be thriving. I can't believe how many books you pump out. And they're all good. And I really recommend rationality what it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters. It does matter. This is crucial. Reasoning, conversation, the exchange of ideas, the challenging of orthodoxies. This is, this is, this is really the, the lifeblood of a liberal society. And I want to retain a liberal society. I, I enjoy it. I think it's better for all of us. And let's build more nuclear power stations <laughs> soon. Uh, Stephen, all my very best. Thank you for coming on. And to you, it's, been a, it's, a, it's an honor to be on the DishCast and keep up your vital and important work. Well, that's sweet of you, Stephen. See you soon. See you soon. Aww.